As you're sitting, um, I want to lead us in prayer one more time uh, together as a family. Father God, as a family, our hearts are thankful to have Ben and Kedlin Gill back with us. Father, after their long journey to Brazil and their trials and their struggles, we thank you to see their faces. God, our heart hurts with them. But God, we also know that you have not forsaken your promise even now. We pray, Father, in their loss and in their mourning that you will remind them that every good and faithful promise is yes in Jesus Christ. And one day the resurrection will come. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. We love you guys. I have a confession to make. <clears throat> I have not always loved the church the way I should. I know it may seem strange to hear this from a pastor. After all, should, if anyone should uh, love the church, shouldn't it be the pastor? But truth be told... I have the same moments of grumbling and complaining about the church as everyone does. When I hear someone say, I've got some concerns, sometimes I think to myself, if only you knew. The church is messy. And as is true anywhere, the church has people who struggle with selfishness, vanity, pettiness, and are often blinded by their own pride. And I've got to include myself in that assessment, don't I? The stony, frowning faces, the whispered gossip, the subtle judgmentalism, the unforeseen scandals, the unfair criticism are enough to make anyone cynical about the church. Maybe you're cynical about church. If we're honest, then we would admit that the church would not necessarily have been our choice instrument to accomplish God's work in the world, would it have been? We'd have found something better, something shinier, something perhaps a little more faithful than this ragtag group of people here and throughout the world. And yet, in his infinite wisdom... God has ordained that it would be through the church that his name will be proclaimed among all the nations. Why? I have no idea, except so that when all said and done, everybody will know that he did it and we didn't. Still more, God has not called us to simply tolerate the church and all of its deficiencies. He's called us to love her even with her momentary imperfections. Can I, just, can I just say that again one more time? You're not called to tolerate the church any more than you're called to tolerate your imperfect spouse. You're called to love the church, even with all of her momentary imperfections. You see, today we're going to look at the church. We're going to look under the hood. My friends, I'm a pastor. I see cracks, cobwebs. I see nastiness that don't always creep up in here behind the pulpit because it would be inappropriate to just let you see all that. Church can be nasty, messy, dirty. And in case you think I'm talking about someone else, no, no, no. I'm talking about it being nasty and messy because I'm here and because you're here. 
Not just because the person across the aisle's here, but because you're here. The church is messy. And yet it's God's plan to use this messy, nasty group of people to bring him glory. It is his son's bride who will one day don the beauty of royal white when the bridegroom returns. That said, we must do the difficult work of confessing our sinful attitudes toward the bride of Christ, repenting how we snub her. I just, Jesus in all of his infinite knowledge sees it. The way we crinkle the nose at his beloved. The one that he knows she's imperfect. The one that he knows she's sinful. He knows her nastiness better than you do. It breaks his heart to see us snub her the way that we do. It's his pride. The one he intends to marry in front of all the cosmos, inviting all nations to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And how often did we just shirk her aside, turn our shoulders? My friends, I'm inviting you to relearn how to love the church as Christ loves her. And essentially, this sermon's my devotional from going through Romans 1, 8 through 15, because I don't love the church like Christ loves her. I'm a pastor. I should love the church. I know it. So I'm just speaking as one sinner to another sinner, just confessing, hey, can we talk about how to love the church again? To this end, I think Paul's longing for the Romans is instructive. In many ways, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, is just a continuation of Paul's greeting to the Roman believers. However, in these verses, we find in Paul an example of how we should view God's imperfect people. If we listen carefully, he will show us how to pray for and to long for communion with God's people. And even more, he will teach us how to be thankful for them. Again, not just tolerating the church, but loving the church. Not just loving the church, but becoming thankful for the church. For some of us, that idea may be absolutely way out there. I mean, we, I tolerate the church. I want to be a Christian. I'll come once in a while. I'm not ready to see the church implode. I'm not ready for church to just stop throughout the world. But I'm just going to tolerate it. But I'm not ready to love her yet. Well, we've got to get to the love and then even more We've got to get to the being thankful for. That is what Christ has called us to do. You know, Paul loved the church. So I just want to, I want to say before we begin talking about learning how to re-love the church, how to love the church uh, from Paul, I think sometimes it's a temptation to think that the apostles would have somehow transcended the cynicism the rest of us deal with, right? I'm pretty cynical, but I'm not Paul. Paul was an apostle. He kind of was above all that, right? He was never tempted with, with cynicism, being cynical about the church. He never did. Ah, he never had those moments, right? No, he did. We tend to think of them as super Christians who were never prone to frustrations with the church. And I do believe that they fulfilled their callings with joy, but I think it's important to recognize that they faced the same church hurt and the same church problems we have. I mean, let's just consider for a moment where Paul has been in his ministry 
by the time he writes this letter that Moy just read this section of text for us. Scholars believe that Paul wrote to the Romans from Corinth around AD 57, okay? By that time, he had felt the brunt of many of the church's failures. Right after he'd become a Christian, so you guys know the story, he was riding on his stallion, donkey, whatever it was, sees Christ, falls off, is blinded, and becomes a radical Christian, just on fire for the risen Lord. He became a Christian, but other Christians, quite understandably, remained suspicious toward him. How could they trust that Paul was not feigning the faith, just simply to draw them out and then arrest them all together and then throw them in prison and have them executed? He had been a vehement oppressor. He had been given, uh, given permission by the Jerusalem Pharisees to go and lock up any that he found that belonged to the way. But then, according to Acts 9... Paul became a Christian. He starts, he starts debating with the Jews in the, in the Sanhedrins and in the synagogues. And then he comes back to Jerusalem, hoping to attend the Jerusalem church. Jerusalem's his home, so maybe he can go to church there. And then in verse 26, it says this, But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Can you imagine starting off your faith in that way? You know, can you imagine, let's just say, you know, you've been, you've been living your whole life in sin and then you repent and you, you kind of come to church for the first time because you kind of know that, okay, I'm a Christian now, so I should probably be with other Christians. And you walk in the door and the rest of the Christians go, mm, I don't see it. Not a great start, is it, to the church? By the way, that's what happens with many new Christians that come to the church. They come and they don't. You know, well, weren't you the one that was sleeping with your girlfriend last week? <laughs> it, was just, it just starts off that way to where we were, you know, suspicious of them. Well, Paul experienced that. He, he wants to attend the Jerusalem church, and they're like, we don't even think you're a disciple, Paul. It wasn't until Barnabas stood up for him that Paul was eventually accepted as a Christian, until he had a buddy that finally said, guys, this is real, and we need to accept him as a believer. Less than a decade later, Paul receives some sort of thorn in the flesh. He never really tells us what it is, but it's some kind of physical ailment, probably, that caused him suffering. And then, you think you've had it bad in the pandemic, a global famine struck. You know, everybody's mad about masks right now, but back then people were fighting for food. We're talking raids on each other's homes, stealing each other's pantries to survive. That's a global famine. Paul's living in the middle of that time with a physical disability, with a history with the church that didn't believe he actually became a disciple in the first place. Sometime around AD 48, Paul worked with the Galatians, but then he hears that these Galatians that he had helped understand Christ and brought them into the gospel are suddenly forsaking it. Just buying these lines, hook, line, and sinker, from the Judaizers, believing that they have to somehow go back and obey the law in order to be Christians. He had spent hours and tears and sweat and pain with the church of Galatia. And then these people just waltz in and they all follow after them. It'd be like spending years as a preacher behind the pulpit, buckling down on the church, just hammering away every Sunday. And then one guest speaker comes up and preaches something different. Everybody says, we want him. We want to follow him. 
That's essentially what happened to Paul in Galatia. It broke his heart. That very next year, he gets into a serious dispute with his best friend, Barnabas, about whether or not John Mark should be allowed to go on the mission trip. It apparently got so serious and so severe, so intense, that the only resolution was that Barnabas and Paul had to split up. They couldn't be together. Two Christians, and not just church members, we're talking about Barnabas, big Barnabas, right? And Paul, having disputes that they couldn't see each other anymore. His second and third missionary journeys were filled with a number of beatings, death threats, and unfair trials at the hands of both his own people, Jews and Gentiles. He decides to go to Corinth, hoping to minister in the church and receive some kind of refreshment from their faith. You know, he's been out there, he's just, he's been, he's been abused and misused and all these different things. And he comes to the church, hoping to minister in it but instead leaves in affliction and anguish of heart because of what he finds there. He finds some dude sleeping with his mother-in-law and the church doing nothing about it. He sees that they tolerate that kind of thing, but they don't tolerate different kinds of people. They'll bicker about opinions but they don't care about these big hypocritical sins that are being played out in their very midst. Breaks his heart. He, he, said, he tells him in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that he shed many tears because of them. Many tears. He wept over them. During this time, Paul is also dealing with so-called brothers. He calls them that, Brothers who rejoiced that Paul was in prison and was suffering. And then while he was out of, out of the game, they make a bid to set up some kind of competing ministry to discredit everything he did. Brothers. He was mocked by a group of self-exalting men, false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, going to his friends, making lies about him, and his friends believed it. That kind of hurt. And they did all this to labor to bring the Corinthians away from the one true gospel. Now, the reason I'm giving this detailed recounting of Paul's struggles with Christians, we're not even we're not talking about his trials in Athens and, and all these other places, not his stoning in Lystra. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about the trouble he had in the church. There's all kinds of trouble outside the church. But this was just the trouble inside the church. Let me tell you something. You think you have experienced church hurt. Paul was no stranger to the fickle and sometimes disappointing nature of the church. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians about his sufferings, he added, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Have you ever heard a pastor say that he's anxious? about his church. I'm sure there were times that Paul felt the same way Kent Hughes. He was a longtime pastor, and he described ministry in his book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. He talks about the exasperation of trying to hold up a pile of marbles, right? Have, have any of you tried to do that? Nobody does that. I tried it once, but I'm a really weird person. 
So I took a whole bunch of marbles to see how hard it would be. After I, after I had read about this illustration, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll try it. Well, what do you have to do to keep mar- marbles in a pile? Your hand always has to be there. The moment your hand goes away, what happens? That's absolutely right. They go everywhere. I'm sure Paul felt that very same thing. He goes to Galatia. The marbles come together. And then he leaves. And some crackhead apostle, false apostle comes by. And the marbles come careening down. I mean, just, ah, This is not to say that Paul ever felt that the church really rested on his shoulders. I don't think he ever truly believed that the church's health depended on him. It doesn't change the fact that in his humanity, he truly felt the anxiety and pressure of these fickle, unfaithful, flip-floppy, frustrating people. So if you think that the church is imperfect, you're in good company. Paul would say, oh, yeah, yeah, you have no clue. That Paul admits this pressure and this anxiety and this frustration even emphasizes his humanity. He's not a superman. He's an apostle, which means he's still a man called out by God to bear the pressure of ministry in the church. The imperfect church, the flawed church, the broken church. And that's Paul. But what makes Paul even more astounding, I think, is that even with everything he had seen inside the church, Paul avoided becoming cynical about God's people. This is something that's really rare. I, I have, in my years of ministry, I've met a lot of pastors, a lot of ministers that have lived their years in the church. Really, there's two types of pastors one type are the kind that don't make it. They just fall out, they quit, or, or they fail out because of some kind of sin, right? They, the, the pressures inside draw out the worst than them, and next thing you know, they're just not qualified to bear the baton anymore. Others make it, and they, they serve their whole lives faithfully. Somehow they avoid scandals. Somehow they avoid porn addictions. Somehow they don't sleep with their secretaries. Somehow they don't get angry and beat up a church member in public, whatever. I don't know if they did it in private or not, but they never got caught in any of those things. And so they retire. But even of the retired people, there's two different kinds of pastors. There's those that are kind of like, I made it. And then there's others that are just flat out cynical about the believers. Just pessimistic about the way that the church works because they've seen it. I find it interesting that Paul never dips into cynicism here. He's frustrated, absolutely. Angry at times, absolutely. Read the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, and you'll see his anger coming out. Hurt? Oh, man, he, he, tells, he tells Timothy, he says, no one came to my defense when I stood trial. He was on prison in front of Caesar, potentially for his life. None of the church friends that he invested in bothered to come to the trial. You think it's bad that nobody texted you happy birthday. (laughs) Nobody came to his execution trial. 
He was by himself. And even with all of that, he continues to greet Christians with grace and peace. Every letter he writes to the Christian church, grace and peace. That includes Galatians. People whom he could hardly commend anything good. He still extends grace and peace. He never abandoned the church. He still managed in all of his pain and all of his church hurt and all of the wounds he received. He always seemed to retain a true love and a deep affection for Christ's imperfect bride. He saw himself as an offering for her growth. He was willing to be burnt by the church and burnt up for the church, not because it was just the church, but because of whose bride the church was. He was absolutely ready to be skewered by God's people and then beheaded by Caesar because he loved Jesus, the bridegroom. And some, for some reason that is infinitely beyond my understanding, Jesus loves this bride. So I'll be skewered for her every time. That said, Paul has much to teach us about how to love the imperfect body of Christ. Much to learn. So let's just walk through these principles one by one. Principle number one, loving the church means giving thanks for her. If you want to know how to love the church, well, first and foremost, you give thanks for her. Paul writes to the Romans, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. First is an interesting way of putting things. You you typically use first, second, third, right, to make a list. Well, Paul has no second after this. He's not making a list. So what does first mean? Well, proton in in this particular uh, Greek use would be like above all. Hey, above all, I want you to know I'm thankful for all of you. That if, if I want you to hear anything in my letter to you, I want you to understand first and foremost, I'm thankful for all of you. It's not that the Romans were a perfect church or that they had everything figured out. Quite the contrary, you read Romans and you pick up all kinds of bad mamma jamma in the Roman church. All kinds of Terrible skeletons in their closet. They were probably listening to the same Judaizing people that the Galatians were at some point, which is why he goes into such great detail, giving an apologetic for why justifications by faith alone. He's dealing with the same pettiness that he sees in every single church, which is why he has to tell them in Romans chapter 14, hey, as for the one that is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Why did Paul feel the need to tell these Roman believers not to quarrel over opinions? I can only imagine what Paul would have told us in 2020 if he wrote a letter to Greece Church of Ovilla. Don't quarrel over opinions. These issues notwithstanding that he knows he's about to tell them in his letter, Paul maintains that he gives thanks for all the Roman believers. Does anybody else see that as odd? Like, I, like somebody does something wrong or messy, or I see some kind of imperf- imperfection in people. My first reaction is probably not to thank God for them. Right? 
But, but for him, he's like, hey, before we get into any of the mess, before I really deal with your deep issues, first of all, let me just say, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you. Have you ever started a conflict that way? Well, no, obviously not. Have you ever started an argument with your wife with, hey, honey, listen, I don't like what you did, but before we get into this, let me just tell you, I'm so thankful for you. None of us have done that, but that's what Paul's essentially doing here. He starts off saying, I thank God for you. And he's not just feigning things. He's truly thankful for them. Even despite all their apparent deficiencies and failures, he thanks God for them. Now, to, it, it seems impossible to get there, but to attain a sincere gratitude takes a conscientious effort to see God's people the way the Lord sees them. Notice Paul never just says, I thank my God for you. He doesn't say that. He says, I thank my God, what's the next words? Through Jesus Christ for all of you. That may not stick out to you as incredibly important. But such sincere gratitude for imperfect and sometimes failing people comes from a commitment to see them through Jesus Christ. As if Jesus is the rose-colored glasses that change our overall negative perspective of God's people. Second, Paul is intentional in in telling them what he is thankful for. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. You see, there's all these issues here, but he lifts his eyes beyond the horizon of all these problems, and he sees God's not dead The Spirit's still living and active in his people, is he not? I mean, essentially, if we're going to get to where there's just so many problems that we we begin to think that these people are useless, you know, at some point we have to come to a conclusion that the Spirit's not working in these people. Which if they're believers and if they have faith in Jesus, they have the Spirit of Jesus just like you do, which means that he's working, he's moving, he's changing, he's pruning, he's watering, he's weeding up things. You just might not see it, but he's working. So when we say this person's hopeless and they're clearly a believer, I want you to understand what you're saying about the spirit of God in them. My friends, it takes a conscientious effort to look at people through the eyes of Jesus, that is, his people, and then to look for evidences of grace. The problems are always there. The problems are the crust. The problems are the skin. But the evidences of grace is the heart, the liver, everything that keeps that person alive. You don't see those. You see the crust. You see the skin. Therefore, it's easier to write them off. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Romans, writes this, Christian love. I want to emphasize that again. Christian love. To be a Christian who loves. Christian love manifests itself in this, that it rejoices at every good thing that it sees in others. 
especially at their spiritual blessing, and then thanks God for them. When I read that in that commentary, <laughs> I read that on Wednesday. That means I had, I had Sunday afternoon, Monday, and Tuesday to complain about all the bad things I saw. And then I realized, like, I'm not bringing Christian love to this pastorate at all in this. To bring Christian love, to be a Christian who loves the church, I'm going to fight through all the junk that is already easy to see. I'm going to work, do the hard work of looking for the evidence of grace in God's people. I'm going to look to the moment that I'm going to be baptizing my daughter next Sunday, that Alan Goodlow stepped forward and says, I want to be baptized too, that we have Callie and Anthony who sat down with Adam and put their faith in Jesus, and I'm going to fight for the evidences of grace that for some reason we survived 2020. And we didn't split. I'm going to look at the text message from Ben as he struggles with the death of his family member. And says, but we trust the goodness of God. God's working. He's not dead. Well, you know, so-and-so doesn't smile when they sing. Daniel sent me a text message the day after my birthday. I had COVID and only 20 people texted me. (laughs) My friends, it's relatively easy to see the flaws in other people. It takes Christian love to see the evidences of grace. That's why it's Christian love, because of who it comes from. The world loves like this. I'll I'll love you until I see your flaws. Christ loves despite the flaws and through the flaws and looks into the evidence of grace that he's working inside of another person. So my question is, is have I ever loved anyone like that? (laughs) At this point, as a pastor, I'm just boohooing over the commentary going, I don't deserve to be a pastor, you know, (laughs) and coming to realize that I haven't brought this Christian love into this, that, that, that yes, it is. Thick, full of problems. People text me, and I'm like, you want me to deal with this again? Last time didn't work. The scandals, the, the brokenness, the sins. So-and-so's reading junk mail. You know, whatever. And yet, to, to push through, to push through to see evidences of grace, Yes, to love them as they read bad stuff and to bring them out of that. Yes, to, to, to help give them joy as they sing. Yes, to watch their selfishness fall apart when they learn how to love like Christ loves. But still, to love them through it. Not to stop. To love ceaselessly. Those who love the church. Let me say it again. Those who love the bride of Jesus must model the same thankful disposition. Not only are we called to give thanks in all circumstances, right? That's pretty 
all-inclusive, all circumstances give thanks. We are especially called to be people who are thankful for what God is doing in his people. What he's doing in his people. To be sure, there are times that believers act and speak in ways that are completely antithetical to the gospel. In many cases, believers may even ruin their testimony to the point it will take them years to recover if they can ever recover their testimony at all. And there are cases where it feels like they might not ever recover their testimony. And yet... God's promise is that he is still working, always working, always moving, ceaselessly bringing about repentance, chipping, planting, pruning, watering, multiplying fruits. My hope is not in the imperfect people of God. My hope is in the perfect spirit of God that lives in his imperfect people. And because of that, I can see through. There's always evidences of grace for someone who has the Spirit of God in them. If they don't have any evidences of grace, they're probably not saved. And before we get any further, you're not the one to point that out just yet. Because your problem may be you're too blind to see the evidences of grace, which then calls into question your relationship with God. But at the end of the day, you are called to be thankful people. But with these people, really? Paul didn't have Grace Church of Ovilla. He at least had the Thessalonians. My friends, in a dark room, a person can be thankful for even the smallest flicker of a candle's light. On a cold night, a shivering backpacker draws near to even one last ember and delights in the little bit of warmth it gives his hands. In the same way, the flaws, the setbacks, the sins of God's people are many, but the Spirit of God is still moving and active. The smallest melted candle of faith that's sputtering and flickering and not able to give much light at all, guess what? It's still lit by the Spirit's power. Why is it not out? Because the Spirit of God doesn't like candles to be blown out. Yeah, it might be melted away and sputtering and almost dead. But almost that's not dead. Because the Spirit of God gives life. And as long as that little bit of a spark on the end of the candle burns, the Spirit's still working and giving life. Embers. They may not be hot enough to to melt a marshmallow with. And yet, if there's any kind of heat from love, any kind of heat from fellowship, any kind of heat, even the smallest amount, it comes about because of the Spirit's work who nourishes the fire. And he can fan that ember into a flame like that. And he will when he very well pleases to do so, and it may not be your timing. So cool off and give God space to work with embers. Don't be so quick to write off sputtering candles. Because God hasn't. We must be thankful to God through Christ for the faith he grows within his people. Principle number two. I have four of these, by the way. Loving the church means praying for her. 
for Paul, I'm praying for you, was not just something he said. I've been guilty of that. I've got to be honest. I, I, it was something about five years ago that I really started feeling that conviction that if I didn't pray for the person right then, I could possibly forget, right? Have you ever just, somebody tell you their problem, you're like, hey, I'll be praying for you. And then you totally just slips your mind. And then you find out their surgery happened and you never prayed. Okay, it happens to us all? Okay, good. I just want to make sure I wasn't disqualified. All right. But for him, I'm praying for you, wasn't just something he said. It was an act of love for the bride. He writes, for God is my witness. That is a dangerous thing to say if what you're about to say isn't true. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now, specifically, his prayer is that he can make it to Rome. He just wants to see the Roman believers. We're going to come to his longing to be with the Romans later. But right now, I just want to hone in on this. I pray for you without ceasing. The phrase, I make mention of you, could also be uh, translated as I make remembrance of you. In other words, Paul is intentional in drawing his mind to the Romans when he prays. Like he makes an effort to bring people to mind. When he prays, he remembers them. He remembers them whenever he goes to the Father in prayerful petition. Now, in my years of ministry, um, I, I think I've been in, Rachel, correct me, I've been in ministry since I was 18 or 19 in some kind of formal capacity. I've had a role in the church. So I've been in really unhealthy, dying churches that had maybe you know, 20 people on a Sunday morning and a thriving youth group, which was crazy. I've been at church plants that we had to close down because we didn't have any tithers. <laughs> we did have, it was right in the middle of Oklahoma City, and I was preaching and pastoring to 25 homeless guys, none of whom could tithe. So I've been, I've been in a number of church settings. I've been in uh, church settings around the world and um, seen Chinese churches implode. You think that it's better overseas? It's not. They just have different problems than you do. They split over different reasons than we do. But the reality is, is I've been uh, in ministry for a few, few years now, um, you know, started at 18, I'm 32 now. And I have found over those years of ministry that a disenchantment or dislike of the church is often associated by a lack of prayer for the church. Sometimes a lack of prayer in general. I don't like the church. Well, have you honestly prayed for her? Like, honestly, like only you and God know that answer. You could say yes to, to me. I, you can convince me. That's fine. But have you truly lifted up the church? Have you laid bare your feelings about the church to the Holy Father and say, God, this is what I struggle with. This is what I see in this church, and it hurts. Can you move in her? Can you help her? Can you clean her? I love her. I want to love her like you do. Can you help me love the church? I have rarely, if ever, found anyone that says, I just don't feel like church is my thing, and them sincerely claim to be praying for God's people. Those two things just don't go together. Sure, they may pray for Sister Susan when she has, you know, a, a corn on her foot lanced off. But as far as praying for the church as a whole, praying for God's people and all the problems, all the things that disenfranchise them from the church to the beginning with, I don't see anyone really doing that. There might be, but 
Typically, those two things seem to go together. If I were to ask you, do you pray for your kids? Most parents would not admit that they don't, first off. Most parents would say, well, yes, absolutely. Did your kids hurt you? If you have teenagers, the answer is yes. Were you kids at times disobedient, rebellious, broken, stubborn, foolish? Did they gossip about you to, your, to their friends? They roll your eyes at you? Any of them ever tell you they wish you were dead? I hate you. I don't, I have, I'm not there yet. I haven't gotten there yet. But I know, it, I know it happens, right? Why do you keep praying for your imperfect, rebellious, fallen, broken children? Because I love them. Whoa. Have we just made a connection with loving someone and praying for them? Why do we pray for someone? Because we love them. My friends, if you do not pray for the church, can you sincerely say that you love her? It's just a question worth asking. Principle number three. Loving the church means seeking mutual encouragement with her. Paul says that he prays ceaselessly for the Roman believers. Specifically, he prays for God's will to allow him to finally go to see them. He says, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You know, it'd be nearly three years before Paul's prayer gets answered. He, he says, he writes this, and then three years later, he's finally allowed to go to Rome on a prison ship as a prisoner. But he gets, his, he gets what he wants just as a prisoner. He longs to be with them. Why? So that he can give them something. He has a gift. I long to be with you so that I may impart to you. That's a strong Greek. That Greek word there emphasizes, I want to give as, as full as, as I can give you something. I want to give you something that will work for your strength, that will in the process mutually encourage both your faith and mine. Now he's probably talking about his teaching ministry, but the idea is, is that as Paul comes and teaches them, their, their faith will grow stronger. As their faith grows stronger, he gets encouraged. And so there's this mutual encouragement of getting to preach and teach and see people repent and come to faith or serving in the children's ministry and seeing little kids come to know Jesus or serving as an usher and making first-timers feel welcome and loved and feel the hospitality. He derives joy from that to give something so that as other people grow stronger in their faith, he can be encouraged in that. In the 21st century, a commitment to strengthen the church and be encouraged by it is rare, especially when we have as many churches as we do these days. For most, the first question when coming to a church is not, what spiritual gift can I give this gathering of people? Like whoever drives up in the parking lot, ready to impart some gifts today. Typically, the foremost concern is, what can these people do for me, and how consistently do they do it? As a moment of transparency, 
Whenever I go looking for a job, it's because I feel like the church hasn't done enough for me. Consistently. Have you ever had a pastor admit that before? Okay. I, I'm, I'm rare and I may get fired after this, but typically it's in these moments that I feel like you didn't do enough for me that I want to leave you. And it takes repentance and humility to say, whoa, I'm totally jacked up in what I think the church is here for. I've really messed this up. I'm not here to get from you. I'm here to give you, to give to you, to to strengthen you so that your faith can grow stronger. And as your faith grows stronger, my faith grows stronger in the process. And it's this synergetic kind of togetherness that we grow together. Me as a pastor, you as sheep, us as elders, me as a sheep, and my pastors that are sitting in this congregation, elders that are watching me and growing me. And it's just this beautiful organism that grows together. Oh, but you don't make me the heart. I don't get to be the most important part. Or the brain. My friends, it's no surprise that when people come to church with this kind of approach about what can I get or what am I getting or how consistently have they given this to me, that I often hear people lament an expression, well, there just aren't any good churches anymore. This church down the road didn't do this for us. This church down the road didn't do this for us. This church down here didn't do this for us. And this church is adequate. We tolerate it, but it still it's kind of doesn't do this for us. More often than not, what is meant by that sentiment is that churches have failed to make much of us. They have failed to meet our subjective, sometimes self-centered, sometimes impossibly unfair expectations. As a pastor, I feel that unfair expectation sometimes. Can't be honest. One man with four kids and a wife 225 people. Can't make it to everybody's birthday party. I, I don't remember everybody's birthday. Sometimes I don't even remember your name at some times. 225 names are a lot to remember. If I say, hey, brother, that's a key sign. I totally forgot. I'm... <laughs> yeah, it's just to be honest. I love you. I really do. I love your face. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't remember. Love the idea of name tags, but still. (laughs) What ends up happening is when we get so self-centered in what people do for us is we tend toward isolation, right? Nobody gives me what I want. And typically it's because they're seeking what they want. And so when they seek what they want, nobody gives me what I want because I'm seeking what I want. Marbles go all over the table. It's not until a few people decide that they're here to make much of Christ and not men, to make much of Christ and not self, to give a gift to strengthen God's people, not to be here so that God's people for them. It's not until a select group of people do that, that we have a church that's growing and healthy. That's a healthy church. People gathered to make much of Christ. And in making much of Christ, they sincerely love each other in doing so. So let me just ask you, what brings you encouragement 
in church? Are you encouraged when people talk to you more and less encouraged when people talk to you less? Are you encouraged because you were able to give something today to the church that strengthened the faith of other people? Yeah, maybe one person talked to you and maybe you were the one giving in that, in that discussion. Maybe you, you walked to this young newlywed mom and you just let her know, hey, I'm just praying for you. I know you've been struggling with your husband. I'm praying for you. I'm here if you want to have tea and talk. And you've had a good Sunday. For that newlywed bride, you just strengthened a person of God. Someone who will one day be perfectly glorious. Who cares if you talk to anybody else or if anybody does anything for you? You have given to the bride of Christ and the bridegroom will never, ever, ever forget that. What encourages you as God's people? This is not to lessen what many call church hurt. My friends, we are a gathering of sinners. We're redeemed sinners, but we are still sinners. We're broken, aren't we? We're going to hurt each other. And there's, there's, no, there's no lessening that, glossing over that. It's just simply to say that even in the midst of God's people being flawed and broken, you are still called to a high standard of love for her. Now, I also anticipate that there's some who might claim that they're above this need for the mutual encouragement. The idea of being in a mutually beneficial relationship where we actually say we need each other? No, no, no. I'm here for you. <laughs> let's, just, let's, let's settle that right now. You know, before we have coffee, let's decide who's the better Christian, and then, and then we can enjoy the coffee time. I'm not here because I need you. I'm here because you need to weep about your marriage to me. What vulnerable fool would ever admit that they need others? Paul would be like, whoa, whoa, me. <laughs> Boldly, proudly. He does it. He says it here. He's coming to Rome because he needs to be mutually encouraged by the Roman believers. Let me just ask you, if the apostle Paul is not above his need to be mutually encouraged, what makes you and I any better? I am not the Apostle Paul. He was just a man for sure, but man sure does outrank me. If, I, if, if he needed brothers to be mutually encouraged, and he sensed, and this is the thing, it takes humility to be vulnerable. Invulnerable people are prideful, blind people. Just gonna say it. To think you don't need friends, you're a liar. And you're probably lying because you've been hurt. Admit it, confess it, ask God to help you through it, and then admit the need, and you'll see the fruit and the beauty of relationship with God people as they meet your needs and you meet theirs. You are not above the need for mutual encouragement from the church. Finally, loving the church means desiring her growth in the gospel. He tells him, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest, the word there is fruit, 
uh, among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You know, Paul wanted the church to grow, but he doesn't mean in this numerical growth only. I think he, he, Paul would never say boo to more people in Rome coming to the Roman church. But his goal isn't bigger tithes. His goal isn't more bodies and more, as uh, pastors say, more butts and pews, right? <laughs> he wasn't after that. He wasn't, he wasn't after bigger ho- having to buy bigger homes for larger congregations. The word fruit, he uses again in Romans 6, 22, where he says that there is a fruit that leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. He wants to preach the gospel because he wants to see believers grow in their fruit of the gospel. He's writing to Roman saints, and yet he desires to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why? Because you've got to go further up and further in to the gospel. Yes, you're bearing fruit now. You can certainly bear more, so let's do it. You love your spouse sacrificially. Praise God. You can do it even more through the grace of the gospel. You can. So let's do it. Let's see, let's see every branch have fruit because he deserves it. Don't cheat on your wife. Great. Now let's see what we can do with your cell phone. You don't hit your kids. Great. Now let's see what we can do to help you enjoy making disciples of them. Everybody can grow in the gospel. And what's more is Paul believed that he owed it to the Roman church. I am under obligation. The word there is I am a debtor. Isn't that a weird thing? What does Paul owe to the Romans? He's never met them before. What does he owe them? My friends, he had received grace and the calling. And therefore, he was indebted to get the gospel to them. You have received grace and a calling. You are debtors. You may say, I owe no one nothing. You owe everyone the grace that comes from the gospel because you got what you weren't owed. My friends, I hate, I, you know, as a pastor, I struggle being in America sometimes because I liked, I, I, you know, if we had an HR team, I would constantly get written up for stuff like this. I know I should be a little gentler and say, hey, yeah, we need you. We love you. We, yeah, yeah, you know. But the reality is, is that the, the Bible de- describes churches. You owe it to the people beside you to give grace. You're in debt that you will never get out of. By the grace and love of God, you will forever be in the debt of that grace. You owe it to the people around you. To show ceaseless love. Oh, but they're fickle. Oh, but they're broken. Oh, but they imperfect. My friend, everything that you say about someone else, Christ can say about you even more so. You are in debt by grace to show grace. And that's how you love the church. My friends... The cross belongs to the people around me as much as it belongs to me. The empty tomb and the promise of new life belongs to you, imperfect though you are, as much as it belongs to me and gives me new life. 
sinner, wretched sinner that I am with broken desires, hypocritically judging God's people, not loving her as Christ loves the bride. And there's just some moments that even as a pastor, I have to just beat my chest and lower my head like the tax collector, knowing that I have completely failed it. I'm supposed to be a representative of the shepherd. And from my most internal insights, groaning about some of you. (laughs) Won't say who. There's a file. (laughs) And then some of you groaning about me, and some of you groaning about this person, some of you groaning about that person, some of you groaning about all churches. My friends, grace calls us to repentance and to love the bride of Christ, knowing that this imperfect, pimply, disgusting bride, which I am a part of, and I'm probably the pimple. Thank you. (laughs) Pimple though I am, pimple though I am on the face of Jesus' bride, one day she will be spotless. And to that end, I will love her because I love the bridegroom. Let's pray. Father God, we've had some honest conversations today. Maybe some rare conversations. But yet I pray that in your spirit, you will work inside your people and bring us repentance. That we will love your son's bride the way he does. And that we will be thankful for her. That we will pray for her. That we will long to be with her and be mutually encouraged by her. And that we will long to see her grow down deep into the gospel. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.